Hey everybody, welcome to Cornerstone Fellowship. My name is Christian and as the online campus pastor, I get an up close view of what God is doing through our church. Cornerstone's mission is to help each person take their next step with Jesus each week. And this past week, we help people in places from Alamo to Antioch, from Springtown to San Jose, from Port Orchard to Pittsburgh, both uh, California and Pennsylvania, by the way, do just that, take that next step. And whether you're joining us from the Central Valley or Southern California or some military base in Japan, God has something for each one of us individually today. Pastor Steve Matson is here for our fourth and final week of our Anchored in Hope series. So get your Bibles or Bible app ready. You're gonna need it. And do your friend a favor as we get started and, and invite him to join you for church right now. Let's begin with some awesome worship. Let's sing along. I'm glad that you're here. Welcome to Cornerstone. Anchored, we have this hope. We have hope. And as we've been going through this series, I couldn't help but think about all of the resilient, all of the overcomers, all of those who've come before us and been grounded in such a good God. and Like the songs that they would have sung. Even through the tragedies that they experienced and the highs and the lows and as I thought about that, man, it pushed me all the way back to the book of Job. And this is a man who did experience a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain. But a statement that came from his life is this. In the first chapter, it says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes, but blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, wow, like what hope. And it was a few weeks back that we sang a song that was born from his life. And it goes like this. much further into history before you encounter David. I mean, David who experienced tons of highs and lows. And even still, like even through all of that, especially through all of his tragedies, there was this perspective that David had about God that anchored him. And you, you read about it in Psalm 23. Man, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. I am grounded. I am provided for. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. What hope to be anchored in that way, despite all the things that surrounded his life. And it was a few weeks back when we were in that psalm series that we sang this song that was born from his life. And it goes like this. The Lord is, he is my shepherd. for nothing God all that I need He makes me lie down in the pastures beside the water 
so many people who experienced so much pain and still they had a song they still had this hope that we're sharing today and man you push the timeline up to even just world war ii era and there's a beautiful song that came from a lady named ruth jones called in times like these and it was a reminder to so many people who are full of fear and worry that man in times like these you need a savior in times like these you need an anchor you need jesus and it goes like this in times like these, you need a savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure. Be very sure. The anchor holds and grips the This rock is Jesus, yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the song wow just the way that it comforted and reminded people that we have this anchor we have this hope gosh and then you push the timeline up just a little further and what you have is 2015 and a song that gave us so much hope that spoke about that same anchor it goes like this Let the king of my heart be the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the waves, oh, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the waves, oh, he is my song. 
Thank you, worship team. The anchor is so important, and I can't imagine the songs that future generations will sing, songs that are being written right now, songs that help to create that hope-filled future with you. I love it. What's up, everybody? I'm Faith Alfer, and I'm so glad you decided to join us today. Now, there's so many distractions out there every single day. So I think you should give yourself a pat on the back because you made it to church and you made it on time. So good for you. <laughs> As one of the recent members of the freshly formed Diversity Network team here at Cornerstone, I wanted to be the one to update you on the progress that we as a church are making. First of all, we are starting this Diversity Network team as we Cornerstone members seek to find out what racial reconciliation looks like in our context. Additionally, our leadership is going through an important course together. Hey, it starts at the top, right? And thirdly, our entire Cornerstone staff is getting ready to go through the Be The Bridge curriculum starting in September. I am excited to see this progress because God knows it's time, right? Now, I believe God is going to use Cornerstone to lead this in our communities, and we can't wait for that to happen. All right, now let me shift by saying thank you. Thank you for partnering with Cornerstone financially. Because of your gifts, we are helping wherever we see a need in our community. We just received a letter from the president and CEO of the Contra Costa and Solano County Food Bank. Listen, even before COVID-19, they were feeding almost 180,000 people monthly. That number has increased enormously. And his letter says this, as unemployment numbers skyrocket, a record number of our neighbors are turning to the food bank for the very first time in our lives. In our 45 years of service, your donation of $10,000 could not have arrived at a better time. Now this letter saddens me, but it does give me hope. I am so grateful that we as a church can help wherever the need is greatest. Join me, please, and become a recurring giver by heading over to our website. Thank you. All right, Pastor Steve Matson, he's here and he's ready to teach the fourth and final sermon of our Anchored series. So get your Bible ready and a pen and a piece of paper or your Bible app or some coffee <laughs> and use the sermon notes that we provide. You're gonna need it. We are gonna head over to the book of Genesis today. It's the story of Joseph and I can't wait. Oh, and say hi in the chat, all right? I'm glad you're here. Welcome to Cornerstone. Hey, I'm glad you joined us. Um, all month long, we've been talking about biblical hope. 
And uh, we defined it as the believer's confident expectation that God will make things right. And that is such a fantastic thought. Um, we're, we're certain of it. Uh, we're certain that God is aware of us and that God is going to work things together uh, for our good, but using His methods in His timing. And we're certain of this because our hope is welded to our faith. As it says in Hebrews chapter 11, faith is being sure of what we hope for and being certain of what we do not see. Now, our hope doesn't minimize the tough situation that some of us are in. It just magnifies God on our screen, where we honestly acknowledge bad circumstances for exactly what they are. We don't sugarcoat our situation in order to cheer ourselves up. Instead, we face the storm head on, anchored to something more reliable than our feelings. As the prophet Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3, when I remember God, that's when I have hope. Because God's love for me and God's faithfulness to me never fail. My provisions are refreshed every morning. So our hope is anchored not in waiting for life to get better because we know it might get worse. Our hope is in God himself. Because biblical hope is more than saying that things are better than they really are. It is trusting that God is as good as He says He is. So, my great desire for all of us is that when we finally emerge from this forced hibernation known as 2020, uh, we will have developed a more robust faith, a biblical hope that cannot be shaken. Now, today we're studying the life and times of a resilient Old Testament hero, a young man who suffered a series of unfair circumstances over a period of 13 years. Yet he came through it all with an unbelievable job, a spotless reputation, and an amazing life purpose. He ultimately rescued a large nation and a tiny one from starvation. The process itself developed in him some unshakable morals and an elastic faith, taking him from immaturity to manhood. Our hero's name is Joseph, a 17-year-old whose story is found in the book of Genesis, and it is epic. Knocked down by trials that could have buried him in despair, he leaned into God's help and then consistently adapted as the plan continually changed. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis chapter 37 and meet Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob, also known as Israel. Now, Israel is the son of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is the son of Abraham and Sarah. This Genesis family is a, is a family that you need to read about because in order to understand the rest of the Old Testament, you will need to be better acquainted with them. Their story is in the previous chapters of Genesis. We won't take time now, but in order to understand Joseph and where he's headed, you need to know where his family has been. All right, back to the 17-year-old who had big dreams, but um, he had not yet developed the tact or the sense of timing to communicate his dreams to his brothers 
who were already jealous for their dad's attention. Verse 8 tells us how much his brothers hated him. Then in verse 17, dad sent Joe to check on his brothers, and from that day when they saw him coming, they plotted to kill him. And they would have if their brother Reuben hadn't intervened. Look at verse 21. When Reuben heard of their plan to kill him, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness. Don't lay a hand on him. So when Joseph came, his brothers stripped him of his robe and they threw him into the cistern. And verse 25 tells us, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said, hey, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Let's sell him instead. Let's not lay hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. So they agreed. When the Midianite merchants pulled up, they sold Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. Well, his life changes from here on with this terrible thing done to him by his own family. As a teenager, he is betrayed by brothers he will not see again until he is almost 40 years old. I was thinking about some of you. I've heard some of your stories. Joseph is like some of you who have endured terrible abuse and neglect from your own flesh and blood. You of all people would know, how in the world is Joseph ever going to recover from that day in that pit, listening to his brothers debate whether to kill him or to sell him? Somehow, this abuse, this trauma did not destroy him or define him. And that's amazing. Especially when we read forward and we see that when they do meet again, a lifetime later, when he has the power to pay them back in spades, he simply forgives. All right, let's pick up the story in chapter 39, verse uh, 1. Uh, where Joseph, who had been taken down to Egypt, uh, Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So Joseph ends up, he's a slave, but he's got a really great uh, home to be in. Uh, it's going to be a very wealthy home. Uh, Potiphar is the captain of the palace guard. Uh, and the, it says, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. All right, let's stop there because I think there's a principle or two in play that uh, could help us navigate life in 2020. First of all, I think of his age. He is 17 years old. And as I read that this week, 
I stopped and prayed for all the teenagers who join us each weekend. I can't imagine how life sucks for some of you right now. I mean, the main reason you enjoyed school was not the classroom. It was uh, you got to saw your, see your friends. You loved playing sports or going to games. You loved all the social interaction that school provided you. And all of that disappeared in March. Some of you had the most unfulfilling graduations ever. And now that university you were accepted to is saying that this school year is going to be distance learning. Really? A big reason you, you wanted to go to that school was for everything that happens outside of the classroom. But now the classroom, uh, and an online classroom at that, is all that's being offered to you. I'm sorry. But having said that, me feeling sorry for you doesn't help. You have got to figure out how to adapt to these realities and keep pressing forward. Remember, you have life goals that need to be achieved, and COVID-19 cannot stop you from who God has called you to be. Maybe Joseph's story can help. Notice how this teenager leans into his new normal, basically letting go of plan A. He shows tremendous flexibility as he goes from being dad's favorite at home to becoming Potiphar's slave in Egypt. Now, how was he able to do that? Well, as we watch what he, he says, uh, what he does, what he doesn't do uh, here and even later, it shows that um, he didn't see this man Potiphar or this situation as mastering him. Joe only served God. And God was in control in Egypt as much as he was in Canaan. Joseph saw God as his real master, not Potiphar. And if God was allowing this to happen, if God could rescue him but didn't, then God must be working a plan. Knowing that, Joseph leaned into a plan that he did not understand. Uh, learning the Egyptian language and teaching himself how to run a large, wealthy, urban household. Abused by his family, working for an Egyptian owner, but assuming that God can bless him in any situation. It's the assumption that if God is allowing it, he will help me navigate it. All right, so let's all apply this principle to our present challenges an imitation of Joseph would have us adapting quickly to 2020 and trusting God to work it, to, to work it out as we, as we hold on to our hope. Uh, uh, learning to just let go of the life we thought it was going to be and embrace the life that, that, that God has allowed and learning to succeed in that life that God has planned for us. Not waiting later to, to succeed, but to succeed right now. Notice also how Joe gave Potiphar his best, even though he was stuck doing what he would not have ever chosen. So I have to stop there with a challenge for all of us, asking, how many of us have leaned 100% into the new normal God has allowed? Or are you barely just hanging in there, hoping your life will return to good old 2019? And notice how Joseph won his new boss over. Read verse 3 again. How, how Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph, giving Joseph success. 
Take a moment now to ask for God to bless you like this. That anyone watching you would say, man, God is with her. The Lord is blessing our entire organization because of her. Hmm. Moving on. Joseph was well-built and handsome. And that was my nickname in high school. <laughs> not really. Well, it actually, well, no, let's not go there. Sorry, move on, because it didn't actually, it wasn't a good thing. Uh, Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Oh, man. Teenager, far from home. But he refused. Ma'am, with me in charge, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Hmm. No, she spoke to Joseph day after day. He refused to go to bed with her or even be near her. Well, the story goes on. It's terrible. Um, she, day after day, she comes after him. And one day she gets a hold of him and corners him and, gets a, and, and has him, and he just basically slips out of his coat and jams. And she's had enough. She screams. She, she uh, calls people in, claims that he tried to rape her, shows them his garment. And uh, then, then her husband comes home, and she says in verse 17, that Hebrew slave you brought to us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When Potiphar heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he believed her. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Well, that's great. You do the right thing, the honorable thing, the ethical, moral thing, and this is what you get. Life would actually have been easier for this handsome young man if he had just given in to his boss's wife. But he just couldn't. His moral compass worked just as well when he was far from home, even if doing the right thing bore unfair and harsh consequences. Doing the right thing often means doing the harder thing. Read on. While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. God showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And now we see the pattern emerge one that stays with him through his entire life as he earns the favor and trust of those in authority over him. Whether he's in a mansion or a prison, whether it's Potiphar or the prison warden, anyone observing him easily sees that God's blessing is on him. 
Soon he's managing the prison with the same efficiency as he ran Potiphar's household. And did you notice the repeated phrase emerging in this story? We read it four times in chapter 39. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. God's abiding presence went with, with, with Joe wherever he was. It was the one constant in his life. As circumstances continued to drastically change, and God was with Joe as much when, when, when Daddy was pampering him as he was when his brothers were counting their silver and seeing him disappear into the horizon. God was with him as much when he was respected by his wealthy Egyptian owner as when that same man had him arrested and punished without a trial. The only non-variable in Joseph's crazy life was God's abiding presence. Say those words with me. God's abiding presence. Friend, listen to me. God is with you in the same way. Circumstances change, but God is there for you to recognize. God is there for you to access His presence, His power, and His plan. God is with you to encourage you, advise you, to give you wisdom, patience, and perseverance. You are not on your own. Remind yourself of this simple truth. Be still several times each day in order to recognize that God is right there where you are. Maybe you'll want to write this phrase, God is with me, on a card and carry it around for a while. You know, I have a young friend who, who lives like God is aware of everything happening to him. Uh, he had a great job and a sports-related career until March when COVID-19 basically shuttered his company almost overnight. He was out of work. Uh, he put out 80 job applications in, the new, in new fields, praying over each one. But only one employer even bothered to respond. So he prayed and interviewed with that employer. He asked God to give him wisdom in response to the questions, and he asked God to give him favor. Well, he starts the new job in August, the highest paying job he has ever had. Back to Joseph in prison, uh, running the prison. Uh, read in chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. So he throws them into jail, and Joseph is assigned uh, to look over them. So after a while, each of them had a dream. Uh, and back then, it was really thought that, that, that God spoke through dreams. And you know, he actually did. So Joseph sees them the next morning, and he sees that they're kind of confused and talking about their dream. And he asked them, what's up with you guys? And they said, well, we both had dreams, but there's nobody here in the prison to interpret the dream. Then Joseph says to them, God can do it. Tell me your dream. So the cupbearer and the baker, who believed their dreams meant something, now are told by Joseph that he is going to interpret their dreams. Dreams are God's business, he says. Just tell me what they are, and I'll ask God for the interpretation. Now, this is crazy, because to our knowledge, this young man has never interpreted anyone's dreams. But that doesn't stop him, and here's why. This kid believes that God can miraculously, instantly give him a completely new skill set. Because of his faith in God, Joe views himself with unlimited potential. 
I work for God, he says, so he'll tell me what your dreams mean. Amazing also that this guy whose own dreams have been shattered over and again is willing to, 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 to help them live out their dreams. Like Joe made Potiphar's life better, and then the prison warden's life better, now he helps his cellmates. You know, another thought for us to ponder is how we also can serve others where our dreams are still pending. We don't have to wait for our life to come together until we reach out and help others with theirs. So, the cupbearer goes first, and his dream is bizarre. You'll have to read it. But then God does give Joseph the accurate interpretation that the baker is about to be released and returned to his old job. No, that would be the cupbearer is about to be released. Now, the baker is encouraged by the news of the cupbearer, so he quickly tells Joseph his dream. But the interpretation is horrifying and unfortunately accurate. In three days, Joseph tells him, you will be executed. Bad news for the baker, good news for the cupbearer. But what about Joseph? Look at verse 20. Well, the third day was Pharaoh's birthday. He gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, so he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hands. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to him in the interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Oh. I envision 28-year-old Joe going back to his cell on Pharaoh's birthday. I see him packing his meager belongings and telling the warden goodbye and, and sitting on the edge of his bunk. And, and then a day passes, and then two days, and then a month, and then two years. Uh, 24 months of waiting in prison. That's 104 weeks, 730 days of being forgotten. I think I would have gotten bitter and given up at this point. I would have thought God had abandoned me. I do wonder if this was the most difficult season for Joseph, forgotten by the cupbearer, a man he had helped, who had the power to help him. So this week, as I prepared to share this with you, uh, I, I did see something new. I noticed this repeated phrase in the Joseph story. Sometime after this, it says. Another place it says, sometime later. And as I sat with this repeated phrase, I was reminded that for believers anyway, there is always later. I mean, that's what biblical hope is about, that later will be better. The very foundation of our belief is the ability to trust the God of now to also be the God of later. We don't know when and we don't know how. It may be much later, like in heaven. <clears throat> Yet still we know that someday life will be much better for those who love the Lord. Sorry, I got a little choked up there because I was thinking about my dad there in Florida. I don't know how much longer my dad will live, and I really don't think he has much of a life now. But our entire family has this hope that later will be better. That's a good hope. The old saints called it the sweet by and by. Their songs were packed with hope for a future that is worth holding out for. Read the lyrics to their songs, sung during famine, plague, wars, the Great Depression. 
And you'll see them all reminding each other to hang on to hope. And at this point, hope was all Joseph had. Uh, these prison years were, were long and hard, especially the last two. But hope was enough. And then it happened. One night, Pharaoh had a disturbing dream. Well, two dreams, actually. Let's look at chapter 41, verse 8. In the morning, Pharaoh's mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. He told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Oh my, I can't believe this. There's a guy in your jail that can interpret your dreams. I was supposed to tell you about him. I totally forgot. I'm such an idiot. So, verse 14, Pharaoh sends for Joseph. He's quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh, who said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard that you have this tremendous talent of dream interpretation, to which Joseph responded, no, I don't. I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. What a mature answer. I mean, did you see how when Pharaoh gives Joe a, a chance to to puff his resume and brag on himself about his amazing ability, uh, his response is, I have no ability at all or skill independent of what God will provide. But then he also says, God's going to provide. This beautiful 17-year-old uh, who is also immature and boastful has now become an amazing, spiritually strong and humble 30-year-old man. Pharaoh tells him his dreams and Joe interprets them. Look at verse 29. Here's what's going to happen, Pharaoh. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but then they will be followed by seven years of terrible famine. You need to prepare for this. And then, and, 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 and then Joseph, uh, he's, pretty, he's pretty bold here. He gives Pharaoh some unsolicited advice. You don't stand in the king's courtyard having just come out of prison and start giving him advice. But this is the confidence that he has with the advice. He says in verse 33, Here's what you need to do, Pharaoh. Find a discerning and wise man and put him in charge. Appoint commissioners and collect food and store it and, 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 and let's feed the people, but let's, let's help them understand that the seven years of abundance is going to be followed by seven years of famine. Verse 37, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all his officials. And Pharaoh asked everybody, hey, can we find anybody like this guy right here? He's got the spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning as wise as you, and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all the people are submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And you're going to want to read on because uh, the story just gets amazing from here. Uh, we have just seen the last of Joe's low moments, and from the rest of life, uh, God really uses this guy to save this nation and also to save his own family. So, before we go though, let, let's apply what we just read to our lives. First, let's talk about transitions. Imagine all the crazy transitions in Joseph's life. He goes from being his father's favorite to being sold into slavery. That 750 mile walk across the hot desert would have been an unforgettable nightmare. Then in Egypt, he's purchased by an Egyptian who likes him, who appreciates his talent, who honors his God. But then after Joe's life is really good, it gets really terrible as, as the boss's wife doesn't get what she wants. On, the day, on that day, he starts 
uh, what would have been at least 10 years in prison. Until he finds himself standing before Pharaoh with his eyes still adjusting to the light uh, and then advising Pharaoh with a really good plan. Uh, the drastic transitions in his life had to be disoriented, but we don't see that. He doesn't seem to miss a beat, and that also is incredible. Strong scientific data confirms how transitions, whether they're good or bad, are really stressful. Yet Joseph handles whatever is thrown at him with grace and dignity and humility. And Pharaoh's response to an encounter with Joe is the same as Potiphar's response, the same as the prison warden's response. These Egyptians have never heard of Joseph or his God, but they are obviously and very quickly impressed with this young man. My hope is that we could all represent God this well with those we meet who don't know him, that they would, they would see the real benefits of serving our God out of our lives, and that they would know we are serving God by how often we talk about Him. Whenever Joe had the opportunity, he talked about his God, and he did it in such a, a winsome way. He mentions God four times in his conversations with Pharaoh. Hmm. I think that's pretty cool. Finally, at age 30, life comes around for him. He's on top of the world, ready to follow God's plan to save Egypt and to save his family, the 70 members of the clan known as Israel. As author Gretchen Fleming writes, Joseph did not waste his time in the wasteland. When his brother sold him, he survived. When Potiphar owned him, he excelled. When the boss's wife tempted him, he resisted. When he was thrown into to prison, he persevered. When it seemed like uh, his, his last friend had forgotten him, still he believed. He never wavered. He simply refused to give up. Believing that God was aware and working a plan, Joseph became resilient. Ultimately, God turned evil to good, but Joe had to wait for it. Thirteen years is a long time to wait for life to get better. It wasn't easy. And the scripture challenges us over and over to wait, but it never promises that waiting will be easy. Let me ask you, what are you waiting for God to do? Could you wait a little longer? You know, God is found in the waiting. Strength is gathered in the waiting. You may surprise yourself with your faith and just how long you can endure a trial. Hang in there, friend. Wait for it. While you wait, Work on your perspective, how you see yourself in your present realities. Joseph refused to see himself as powerless. Instead, he saw himself as God's man placed in unpleasant circumstances. He was always looking for the reason why God had allowed him to be where he was. Believers like Joseph never give up until they find their purpose in each and every environment. They're resilient. I like this word resilient. The definition of resilience is the capacity to recover quickly, the ability to bend and then spring back into shape. It's elasticity. I believe that Christ's followers of all people on the planet can earn the reputation of being resilient. 
especially when life threatens to overwhelm us. So I've been praying for all of you parents, especially, trying to figure out exactly how you will manage distance learning in a few, few weeks. Ask God to help you. With his help, you can do this. I was also thinking of those of you trying to figure out how to land a new job, possibly in a new field. Uh, or maybe you're going to pack up and, and move. Well, before you do that, ask God to give you wisdom and wait for the answer to come. He doesn't expect you to figure out life on your own, but he does expect you to figure out life with his help. And he expects you to stay hopeful. You can remain confident that God is in control in the craziest times. You can be tested, tried, purified, refined, and come out better for it. Now, if you need for us to come alongside you, we would love to do that. We can talk, we can pray, you just let us know. Uh, we can meet you on Zoom or FaceTime or even in person on the patio of one of our campuses. Our hope is that in the future, we will all look back on 2020 with what we're going to call 2020 vision. That once we saw through the lens of biblical hope, we had 2020 vision to see that this year was a blessing, an irreplaceable time of deep personal and spiritual growth. That we all came through better for it with a God-given mission to save our family and maybe even our world. Well, that's, that's enough. Uh, let me close with the words of St. Paul who said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. It is in this hope we were saved. We eagerly wait for it with patience, for we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. Let me pray for you now. Close your eyes, hold out your hands, and receive this prayer. Father God, I pray for your beloved congregation that we know as Cornerstone, all over the East Bay, all over California, all over the United States, and all over the world. I pray that you would supernaturally give us hope and let us feel your presence where we are right now as we receive it. Help us to completely lean into and adapt to the new normal and help us to thrive in it. Be with us as we face the challenges of this month and next month. Help us, Lord, to, not, to just stop waiting for life to return to 2019 ways of doing things and help us to find the new ways. Keep us safe, safe from this terrible virus, safe from loneliness, draw us together, safe from, from depression, Dark thoughts keep us strong. Help us to be patient with one another and loving as we, we move into what is obviously your plan for us. And Lord, soon, please rescue us. But as you do, Lord, we want you to know that we will have not wasted this trial, but we will have grown stronger in our faith because of it. 
And all God's people said, Amen. Now let me bless you also from the words of St. Paul. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You take what the enemy meant for evil, and you turn it for good. You turn it for good. You take what the enemy Turn it for good. Thou searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise, treasures that fade, never enough. And you came along.
There's nothing better than you. Yes, thank you so much, Enoch. So good. Okay, this coming week, let's take our next step with Jesus. And here's a few next steps we can take. Head on over to the chat, to the link that we post there, uh, or you can go to the sermon notes at live.cornerstoneweb.org. We've created a document that includes a Spotify playlist and then a lyric sheet full of old hymns and spirituals, songs that talk about hope. Play them in your home, in your car, listen to them, read along, sing along, and really sit with these songs of hope. I believe that God will use that in your life this week. Additional next steps are these. Uh, read the rest of Joseph's story as he's reunited with his brothers, who are terrified of him, by the way, and then watch him forgive and rescue them. Next week, we start a brand new series called The Art of Neighboring, where we dive into what it means to be a better well, neighbor. And now more than ever, I believe that we need strong communities. As a famous, uh, famous Dutch saying goes, beter een goede buur dan een verre vriend, you know, from Proverbs 27.10, a good neighbor is better than a faraway friend. So join us next week for part one of this four-week series. Until then, I love you and I'm praying for you and I hope to see you right here next time. Now stick around for a while as we listen and watch some great worship music that we recorded a little while back. Enjoy. <laughs> 